Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Neil and Jordan podcast, the podcast where two comedians talk like experts on subjects they are not experts on. Today we're going to talk about Venice. Jordan wants to talk about Venice. Have you have you been there recently? What was the uh, no. what was the what was the catalyst for this discussion? My autistic obsession with Byzantium has led me there. And okay. as they say, okay. all roads lead to Venice. They say Rome, but whatever, it's close enough. It's in Italy. Yeah, they're the same, right? Same shit. One has got water. Yeah, exactly. Instead of roads. Yeah, well, yeah. What do I know about Venice? Not much. All, all I know canals is that, lead I to Venice. About, I just think about uh, a, a really hot European couple making out while the sun sets and some old man is like singing, rowing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, That's so nice. <laughs> drinking wine. But the, tr- I, the, the truth is that it's actually um, – there's like a lot of poverty there, isn't there? Is there? It's like a lot of, a lot of rats and things. Like that would average, not surprise me average, at all. It's a dock. Yeah, but the average person who lives in Venice is not that good. I mean, uh, half there's not that Europe's, many people that live in Venice as well. It's yeah. like not that big. Yeah, Europe's on the decline. That's what I've heard from a oh, lot yeah. of the random YouTube videos I watch. I don't know if it's true. <laughs> but yeah. Well, it is uh, Italy's Great Barrier Reef. It's fucked. Climate change is will. Inter- I mean, obviously, right? Like, it's mostly built on wood. I don't think it has roads. I heard uh, at the start of the pandemic when everyone was locked up, a lot of animals actually came into those uh, little rivers or what What do you call it when it's water through the city? Yeah, canals, right? Canals, yeah, of course. Uh, they actually were a lot of fish that came in. And I know, isn't that sad? Sad. And more Romant- ways, quite romantic. Dolphins. I know, that would be yeah, great to a see. Dol- a dolphins actually came in. I don't know how true that is. That seems yeah. fake, but maybe. maybe. Dolphins are very smart. They say they got, they're the smartest after human beings. Uh, and I mean, the I Discovery rem- Channel said that. So yeah, like because I'm always just hearing, is it chimps, is it pigs, is it dolphins? Can never. Yeah, those they've three. all got theories. You know what, though? You know what I'm fascinated by, and I want to talk to a university lecturer about this. So, if anybody is an expert on this, please put a comment at the bottom on how I can contact you. But man, the idea that sperm whales are potentially smarter than human beings, and at the very least, have much more developed language capacities than we have how do they measure something like that what are they measuring what by what metric are they determining intelligence because i've heard by the methods and modes that they determine human intelligence when they adapt that test to certain species many of those species actually outperform the average human but Mm. i don't know how they would go through the process of adapting that and and things because I haven't actually done an IQ test. I'd imagine some of it would depend on just concepts that only humans can understand through shared culture, but I don't know how they would get a chimp to do something like that. I'm sure they'd have some way of measuring a chimp's spatial awareness and, and pattern reg- recognition, though. Yeah. Yeah, they how. definitely would. It'd just be much more simple things than... You know, there's this many Skittles here. How many Skittles are there now? There'd be things like that, I suppose. But I think, yeah. The reason of 
human success is just our ability to coordinate in very large groups. Coordinating very large groups, but this is the other thing. Being able to document what has happened in the past. So you can learn from experience from thousands of years ago. And that's actually the massive disadvantage that a lot of sea creatures have, that they think are very, very, very intelligent. It's just that they don't have hands, so they can't. Uh, yeah, and I've also heard that Neanderthals had a larger brain than Homo sapiens, mm. but weren't able to coordinate in large groups. They're nah. also just stronger. Maxed out at 30 or something, I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, and humans were able to amass larger social circles through abstract thinking and the ability yeah. to have sort of shared idols and yeah, and like very sort of early religion. Yeah. That in many ways is what led to our success. Yes. But uh, before we get into Venice and uh, discussion of uh, animal intelligence, this podcast is sponsored by Crush Organics, Crush Organics CBD oil, Crush Organics with a K. Go to crushorganics.com, use the code NEIL, you get 40% off, 40%. That's nearly 50%. That's half. So go to crushorganics.com, get yourself some of that sweet CBD oil. I've been using it for nearly a year now. Best way to help you get a good night's sleep. Oh, look at that. My cat's just jumped on the table if you're watching on YouTube. You can get CBD oil for your pets at crushorganics.com. Right, thanks for helping out. Get 40% off with that code. So use that code and come see us live, respectively. Friendlygeordies.com, comedyuntamed.com, um, all across the East Coast. Regular shows in Sydney, Western Sydney, Newcastle, Brisbane, and Melbourne. Where are you touring next? Oh, I'm going to Perth and Frio. So come on down and have a chuckle because I want to I want to sell more venues, frankly. That's why. That's why I want you to come down as a body count. You've been selling like crazy, dude. Well done. Oh, thank you. So, what, six comics lounges or something? Yeah. Are you going to start doing theatres? Or are you just happy to do those more localised oh, I'm not doing theatres. What's the point? The financial reward is actually, like, yeah, you've got to pay a lot for a theatre. I swear to God the only reason people do it is because there's a, there's a prestige in their mind of I made it, I can go to the end more. But, nice man, if you are way. able to – it's true, it's it definitely fun. is. There's nothing better than going in a really well-established theatre that has acoustics specifically designed for oratory expression, right? Yes. Like it's, it's going to be yeah. great. Opera House is like that. It's never going to be an experience. In fact, uh, the greatest performance I've ever done, and I still remember it, even though it was fucking like, what, 10 or 15 years ago at this point, it was the Opera House, and it was purely because of that. You're right. Like, when you are in a space that is designed for what you're doing, it's definitely going to be the pub where half the people were sitting outside when I was in Newcastle that couldn't see the projector screen, and they paid for that. Who'd have thought it's going to have better acoustics than the PA system that I think was designed Fuck. for athletics carnivals? Which pub did you do? We go. Oh, I don't know that one, but uh, surprised me. <laughs> it was rough. Did you get a good turnout? Yeah, we got a great turnout. Oh, but from now on, guys, I'm going to splash out. I'm going to go to an RSL next time, okay? Oh. I know. Hey, big spender. Oh, you think you're better than us? <laughs> <laughs> Fuck, you RSL, eh? 
Fucking think you're too good now, Mr. Big Shot YouTuber. You know what? Miss Fuck. actually explained right, it so him. well when he was saying, look, okay, here's the end more and here's the Wico, right? There, there, there are venues that are just here. Just go to these ones from now on. And that's where I'm aiming. I'm aiming for that. I'm, sick, I'm not going to be doing theatres. Not a chance. Especially because I hate the fact that they're all owned by these entertainment mafias yeah, and I refuse a, to pay a cent to them. Yeah, there's a big reason I don't want to do them as, as such. Well, I'm also trying to change up the the calendar, if you will. I don't want to just do one show in a short period of time in one city for that year. I'm, I'm doing these regular ones now and we've got a completely different show, completely different guests. Yeah, it's way better. So yeah, I'm not doing any theatre. We're not can't do a theatre every month. So yeah, um, really not necessary. Get a better comedy experience. You see the big international acts at theatres, but the Australian acts should just go to the lo- the. Every city has a comedy club, and if you go there on a Friday or Saturday night, you'll probably get a better show than paying eighty bucks to see someone who's on the ABC mm. or Charlie Murphy or something. The not good Murphy. Come on. Sure. Don't, don't you reckon most of the time when you're at the State Theatre, I don't know, it's just every time I ever go past the State Theatre, I think, I am not paying $100 for that. I'm sorry. You are not worth $100. Yeah, yeah. And then as you're saying, it's you go to that club, 10 bucks, beers are cheaper. Yeah. It's a better night it's out. A, it's a much better night out. So uh, the Comedy Lounge in Perth, the Rhino Room in Adelaide, Comics Lounge in Melbourne, the Comedy Store in Sydney, but also Potts Point Hotel. It's basically a comedy club now. Mm. And the sit-down in Brisbane. So I'm sure there's other clubs in smaller cities as well. But uh, that's where you're going to get your, the Primo best entertainment for your bar. For sure. Don't even see us. No. Why the fuck? You see enough of us. Go see one. I'm not, I'm not rating Comedy Store either because they're part of the mafia. But go see something at the comedy club. Yeah. Anyway, Venice. Come back here, Kat. Was Venice a strategic city in the Byzantine Empire? Yes. Oh, okay. Tell me about that. Educate me. I got I got no idea about that. So tell well, me what happened. It's been freaking me out and I think I found the premise to my next stand up show because Fuck, how do I even start? Really compressing a thousand years of history here, but it is Truly terrifying. Uh, Venice, let's just put it this way. Venice is the key to the modern world and the current power structure and why everything is the way it is, including the way that you think. As a big That was call. the key. It's a huge call. And I'm what? calling it. Okay. And let me just say this as well. Before I even begin, this is a really good determinant of this. Shakespeare wrote three plays, Merchant of Venice, Othello, King Lear. They're all about Venice because he was alive in the time when that was becoming the extremely sinister power power entity that it has become. Or let's just say the yoke of this power entity. But fuck, I don't even know where to begin. Honestly, because it's just all I read. For three hours a day, I reckon, I spend living in, you know, 1000 AD. I'm obsessed with the Byzantine Empire 
And a big reason that I'm obsessed with it is because when I was a kid, I was obsessed with Rome. And in my mind, Rome ended in 476 AD. That's when the West Roman Empire fell. And then this thing was called the Byzantine Empire over here. What I found out later is that they called themselves the Roman Empire right up until their demise until 14... 1453, right? So another thousand years, another thousand years that has been called the East Roman Empire and has been, you know, very deliberately stripped away from being called Roman. And, yeah. And was Constantinople the... Yes, that was New Rome. Yeah, okay. Mm. Split into West and East, the East Roman Empire continued on for another thousand years. As I've said before to you before, that that is an incredible accomplishment. Uh, this is an empire that was fighting a two-front war essentially for a 1,000 years. It was able to withstand climate change. It was able to withstand huge, massive hordes of people all the way from Russia and China just slowly accumulating until there was essentially hundreds of thousands of soldiers crashing on the walls. Didn't matter. Was able to withstand that. Was able to withstand the rise of the caliphate, which was all of the Middle East, all of North Africa, Spain, was able to withstand that pressure. Uh, was able to withstand the pressure of losing four-fifths of its empire within the span of a generation. It was the fact that that continued meant that they were doing something right, and it is testament to exactly what is bred out of us, which is government. A strong government can withstand all of those pressures, It can withstand environmental because this is the thing that's also fascinating me about the Byzantine Empire is that virtually every other empire, there is environmental reasons for why it collapsed. You can always link it back to there being a change in the climate and then that changes the conditions of the empire and it crumbles. This was not the case with the Byzantines. The fact that we even call them the Byzantines is something else that freaks me out because there's a very deliberate history whitewash to not call the Byzantine Empire the Romans, even though they call themselves the Romans and they kept those institutions going and they were the Roman Empire. Like, they never stopped being that empire. They had all those institutions running. It was the same thing. What was the relationship between the Eastern and Roman and Western Roman Empire after they split and then throughout those, ex- those thousand years while it continued on? Well, the West Roman Empire, what was the West Roman Empire, which is Western Europe now, that broke up into all different types of kingdoms and territories and eventually it formed into the Holy Roman Empire. That was about Central Europe, I suppose. Uh, And then it fell into a bunch of city-states. That was always morphing and changing. The whole time the Byzantine Empire was kind of standing strong. The Byzantine Empire was this constant superpower within Europe. And what territory did that mainly cover? Modern-day Turkey and the surrounding modern-day countries? Modern-day Turkey, bit of the Middle East, Balkans, and a little bit of Italy and, um, like, you know, it had different forms throughout it, but, yeah, let's just say that it was mostly the Balkans, Turkey, Sicily, and southern Italy, and then, like, you know, Crete. Um, Kept as as, as a compacted naval empire, I suppose, for that time. And this is where it comes in, Venice up here. 
Venice right at the top where Italy is. They held on to that because Venice became sort of this refugee camp for all of the aristocracy of Western Europe that couldn't make it to the Byzantine Empire because it is essentially a swamp. It was built off of nothing. There's very little land in Venice. And so it was for, you know, primitive barbaric tribes. They didn't have the naval power to attack Venice. And so the Byzantines would use their superior naval fleet to protect those people there. Um, That was the origins of Venice, which is very, very fitting. It was essentially built on a swamp. That is such a good way to describe Venice. Um, What is really piquing my interest is every time you go to the IPA, every time you go to one of these Coke-funded think tanks, they're always saying, we need to bring society back to enlightenment principles. They're always trying to bring humans back to the Enlightenment era. The reason they want to bring people back to the Enlightenment era is because the Enlightenment era was when kings and queens started getting taken down and we started rising up with parliaments. And the reason they want parliaments is because it's a much easier system to control and it gives the aristocratic class direct representation because it's the House of Lords. So they wanted power instead of having kings having power. And so the Enlightenment era was really, the the intellectual hardware of it was to, you know, put into the mind of the aristocratic class, this person isn't ordained by God anymore, okay? You're in control. That was pretty much it. It was a justification for getting rid of kings, That's why they're always saying we need to go back to enlightenment principles, I think, anyway, because it's essentially saying let's go back to an oligarchy. Now, yeah, sorry. uh, I'm definitely out of my depth here, but do you you think you could attempt to steel man an an opposing viewpoint to that and, and say put yourself in the mind of someone who does, who sees a different, a different conception of those enlightenment principles? What do you think they would say to, to what you said? They would be saying that these were an an awakening of ancient Greek philosophy. This was an awakening of essentially education, a value of education. Uh, They would be saying that this was a point where a bunch of philosophical ideas were emerging and so these great Western values that we have now, it's because of the Enlightenment age. Rationality, right. And Rationality, yeah. freedom of expression, all of these ideas, right? They're, you're saying they're a veil for uh, the arist- aristocratic class to take on more power and no longer have to answer to the higher, more abstract power of God? Yes, uh, because a lot of the – this is the other thing. If you, I was talking to someone who was an expert on the Enlightenment age recently – if you look at the great writers of the Enlightenment era, they're so much more savage about the existence of God than Richard Dawkins ever was. They were really trying to kill God. That was one of the main objectives of the Enlightenment era. So aren't most of those conservative think tanks also harping on about bringing back Christian and Judeo-Christian values as well. Yes, but not originally. That was because they realised we can 
supersede the uh, what are they called again? Now I can't remember. Uh, evangelicals. The evangelical is a voting block of the Republican Party that is rock solid. And so if you listen to what Charles Koch and David Koch were talking about, because they're just Enlightenment era fanboys, they were scathing of God. They were scathing of organized religion at the beginning. And then they realized that they actually need the uh, evangelical vote to get over the line and fill their objectives. And then all of a sudden you started infusing Christianity into it. So who were some of these Enlightenment writers that were hypercritical of the concept of God are we talking about? I mean, I'm really out of my depth here. I don't know, but uh, like Nietzsche and these sorts of guys, or is that does that come a bit after the Enlightenment? I think Nietzsche's after. I don't know because the guy that I was speaking to was an academic and he was just rattling them off very quickly. But the general concept that he was talking about, which was, you know, Nietzsche's God is dead was a result of the Enlightenment era. Which my point is that the Enlightenment era was a result of the Renaissance and the Renaissance was the result of the fall of Constantinople because, as I was saying before, this was a fortress that had kept how to run government, how to run a Roman society away from barbarian hordes and Arab invasions and Mongol invasions for a thousand years, held it behind these impenetrable walls when all the other major libraries of Europe had burned and the entire society regressed into essentially a Stone Age, a little bit higher up than a Stone Age. It was able to maintain civilization and order and act as a state for another thousand years. Now, the reason that it fell... And this is the thing that is, like, it, it really, I think, marks a shift in European psychology, therefore human psychology. The way that Byzantine emperors, the way that Byzantine people, the way that the Middle Ages saw the world is fundamentally different to the way that we see the world. And it is because Venice essentially made a an elite class that is not bound to land. I'm going to have to explain this a little bit deeper, but just as a quick general guide, before that, gentry were gentry because of the land that they held. As a result of that, they had a direct interest in defending that land. What Venice had done, and this is something that the Pope, I can't remember which Pope it was, but it was a little bit after the fall of Constantinople had identified. He used to disparagingly call the Venetians fish. He said that they held more in common with fish than men. And what he was saying is that because they lived on that canal and they were just this weird little quirk of history, that they were able to uh, survive all of these barbarian invasions and the Byzantines originally were protecting them so that they could have some kind of foothold, strategic foothold in Italy to keep their Italian provinces. Um, they were able to foster a different society and a different mentality to everybody else. The way that they were going to get rich, the way that they were going to protect themselves became truly an abomination of how civilization should be run. Truly an evil, sinister, sick place. It was because the way that they got rich, seafaring nation, 
They started developing, the, you know, their, their merchant fleet, obviously, uh, and people were just naturally adept at sailing. The way that they got rich was by trade. Now, at its core, if you boil down trade, obviously, economic students are going to cringe at what I say, but you have to admit that there is some truth to this. In trade, if you are good at trading, if you are a good merchant, you are essentially a dishonest person that is ripping people off on both ends, aren't you? Because you are buying a good for less than it is worth and selling it for more than it's worth. That's success. That's not the trade. That's a that's a uh, that's a transaction that would come after the trade, right? The trade would be the transaction from what you're actually buying that initial good with. Huh? So you're saying you're buying it and then selling it for a profit. Yeah. Those are two trades, aren't they? Yeah. The first trade is that someone has given you the money or the gold or whatever and you've given them the product. Sorry, vice versa. You've you've attained the product for a price. That's the that's a trade. Yeah. And then the the next trade is then okay, you're reselling that, adding value to it. Mm. So they're two trades, aren't they? Yeah. But the, 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 the concept of trading, the concept of trading, if you are, let's say that you're a good merchant, if you're a good merchant in that trade here, you're getting it for less than what it's worth. You're going to come up with some lie, some strategy, some little scheme, some little, uh, you know, monopoly around the area so that you are getting this for cheaper than your competitors are. And then you are going to go to somewhere where you can sell it for more. That's how you're going to make profit. Is that the only way trade can occur? Do you think? Oh, it's it's most certainly not the only way. It's not the only way. But if you have a society that is encouraging that, and I'll give you a really good quick example of that. In the Byzantine uh, Empire, if you were trading, there was fixed prices. Uh, You had to belong to a guild in the city and it was all based around stopping people from essentially lying and saying, oh, yeah, there was a storm in Syria, so corn now costs, I don't know, 30 ducats a kilo or whatever. I don't know. And then so anyway, so uh, they would have just fixed prices at the day where they were saying, you cannot sell corn for more than this. You cannot sell fish for more than this. If you did, they chop your hand off and say, get the fuck out of the city. Who decided those price controls and how did they, how did they come up with that? Usually the prefect would be there and they would come up with it pretty much because there would be collective information because they had a very strong bureaucracy, uh-huh. uh, which again, I'll have to go back to that point. Actually, this is a good point to say this. The only thing that really survives from the Byzantine Empire, if you ask the average person, what do you know about the Byzantine Empire? Most people would say nothing, but they would maybe know the word Byzantine. Byzantine means unnecessarily bureaucratic, really. It just means there's heaps of red tape, no one knows how it works, an inefficient government. It doesn't sound like an inefficient government, one that lasted a thousand years and was a huge power broker for most of that time. Uh, But there's a very deliberate reason that they stripped it of its Roman identity. Then they gave it Greek, which was essentially just a word for saying faggot back then. It just meant you're gay if you were saying (laughs) Greek. Yeah. Back to the price controls thing. Again, I don't know if I'm... Oh, so sorry, but yes, I'm sorry, but I'll just say like the reason they were able to do that is because they had a sophisticated bureaucracy that was able to get information from across the empire and then they could say, no, it should be worth about this. 
is the answer. But anyway, yeah, go on. What if, say, uh, this is completely, this may not be relevant, but, like, what if the government today said, okay, you can only sell your comedy tickets at X amount of dollars? See, now, as somebody who's enterprising and not a merchant, I would obviously prefer to live in Venice. But this was not the aim of the Byzantine Empire. The aim of the Byzantine Empire because it was heavily indoctrinated in Christian values, which is another reason that I think they want to kill God. There's two other reasons. First off, Christianity was a government of sorts. It was a government that was, it was almost like the UN, really. There was kind of two UNs. There was Islam and there was Christianity and actually Christianity, there was two sects and in Islam, there was two sects. But, you know, like it was a way of organizing international cooperation. It's got similarities for sure. I would it's a government. It's, it's a mode it's of organising people. It's a mode of organising yeah. people. It's not a government, but it's almost a government. This is the thing, especially in Middle Ages society. So, for instance, in Byzantine society, the church didn't pay tax, and now everybody says, how dare they? They, they were avoiding tax. But they were also expected to run hospitals, you know, uh, shelters, uh, houses for the poor, orphanages, they actually had to reinvest that money in essentially the social programs of the day. Can I, can I uh, again, jump in and just say, okay, this is a great example of a government that was acting benevolently. What about a government that, like you say, with that merchant class who were purposefully being dishonest so that they can obtain personal benefit? Are there not examples throughout history of uh, government bureaucracies where uh, the individuals who will power within that government have that same attitude and are looking to just personally enrich themselves. Oh, well, that's every government, right? Like that's any power structure. Every power structure is about enriching yourself. The question is how self-serving are, is that power structure allowed to be before there's like a revolution? And so it happens with the government here. In the Byzantine Empire, you had emperors, but it was a republic. Now, there was examples of families being in for hundreds of years – but if those families fucked up too much, it was ingrained into people's understanding that at the end of the day, these institutions, uh, the bureaucracy, the army, you were a taxpayer and you owned these institutions. And the emperor was sort of just a caretaker of it. It was kind of just a chief bureaucrat, like how we see a prime minister today. In fact, even the idea that you're a citizen really was only continued on by the Byzantine Empire. Everywhere else, it essentially devolved into being a warlord. Like if you were in France in, you know, I don't know, 500 AD, the king was essentially somebody who had a huge army that could just maraud around, take whatever possessions they wanted from you and then just disperse it amongst their army to keep themselves in power. There was there was no concept there that you were beholden to the state and the state owed you certain things in return. There was this sort of – they had a phrase for it, actually. They had a phrase for it which kind of meant the greater good. The, the, the government was there for the betterment of its citizens – And so that was ingrained into your psyche. At the end of the day, the government was yours. That was a a concept that was almost eliminated from civilization. Do you think people today still do – they're constantly saying online, look, the government works for us. They haven't been working for us lately. Mm -hmm. We're fed up with them. We want. But that's what I'm saying. That mentality, just the idea 
that the government works for you could have been eliminated off the face of the earth. Oh, okay, okay. So it's kind of like in that setting where the average person understood at some level that they held some stake in the government, whether they acted on it or not, just the fact that there was that level of entitlement meant that if things were getting too bad, you could essentially overthrow the government. That that, that idea, and it was always legal, by the way, there was never like a, there was no constitution there to say getting rid of this emperor was illegal. Obviously, the emperor themselves would probably say that it was illegal, but it was never written down that you can't just dispose the emperor. So, that was that was there. So, that, that was a mechanism in place that ensured that the government to some level was acting for its citizens. And I again point to the fact that there are very few civilizations that last a thousand years. There's very few civilizations that last a thousand years. And if they are doing that, they're doing something that is benefiting the general polity of the people that are under it because otherwise it would break down, right? And so when the Venetians came along, and this is the thing that started to really freak me out, was they realised that that was their ticket to wealth, was essentially transferal of wealth in a very dishonest way of taking goods, especially luxury goods, and selling them for more than they should be, abstract value. This is where this idea, because before that wealth was always sort of at least linked something to... I mean, there was luxury goods, I suppose, but there was always just this idea that true wealth was generated by something that is tangible, that is there, that you can measure. That started to erode. Then what happened, and this is, from what I can gather, I've, I, I, there's, a, there's a counter theory that I need to read. But a little bit after the second golden age of the Byzantine Empire, which was around 1000 AD, a little bit after that. And keep in mind, this is a government that was able to withstand for 300 years endless raids of Arabs going all through Turkey. And it had figured out a way of protecting its citizens who are essentially just this very advanced small core army that would shadow them until they became too encumbered with booty and then would just kill them all when they were just slowed down by their own wealth. Uh, they were able to do that for 300 years. They were able to organize themselves so that this much, much, much larger empire with many, many more people was not able to take it. Within the span of 50 years, and you always hear this, this idea that, oh, all of a sudden they just had weak leaders. After 300 years of having very competent government, in just 50 years, they lost most of Turkey after their biggest expansion. I've heard a counter-argument to this, I'm going to read up on it. Currently, my working understanding, though, is that all of a sudden the gentry decided I'm not paying tax anymore. Why would I need to? There's no Arab raids anymore. We're king of the world now. Why do I have to pay any tax? What's the government doing for me? And then they started privatising the tax system. And so local governments started saying, and local aristocrats and landlords started saying, no, I'm going to... I'm going to keep this tax and I'm going to hire a private tax collector to collect those taxes. Now, that eroded trust with the public because all of a sudden they were getting charged way more than their 25% tax a year or whatever it was. Uh, And then the aristocrats weren't paying any tax. And every time an emperor was saying the treasury is getting depleted and it was depleted severely after 50 years, it was full to the brim. And then all of a sudden there was nothing in there and the army was weak because they couldn't afford to train them properly anymore. 
you see that there's this idea that all these weak leaders came along. The reality of the situation, I think, is that the aristocratic class, the oligarchy, started just installing leaders of theirs to run Constantinople that would turn a blind eye to the fact that this region isn't taking tax or these lands aren't taking tax and it became poorer. It got so bad that once the Turks had taken Turkey, they turned to Venice, who was now extremely rich through years of this kind of process of just taking money through trade and said, you've got a powerful navy, can you help us out here and protect us along this coast so we can focus on taking this land back and in exchange, in exchange, and this is the really creepy part that freaks me out, we'll give you free trade throughout the empire because that's what Venice really wanted. Now, in medieval society, they thought, because they were just so conditioned to this idea that, like, you know, surplus accumulation of wealth is sort of evil, like to just come up with an abstract theory of wealth, it was so anti the Christian doctrine Ripping people off was just very unchristian. So it was honestly unthinkable to them of what Venice would become, which was essentially this parasitic entity that was slowly transferring the wealth of Byzantium out of Byzantine and into Venice. A really good example that I always think is like, you look to who the height of a civilization is. You know how everyone always is freaked out by the fact that in China – the average child wants to be an astronaut and in the West they want to be a social media star and everyone's just like, well, there's a society on the rise and there's one that's on the fall. And it's, it's actually a really, I think it's a really good way of doing it. Like what, what is the thing that a society perceives as being a hero or like a great person? And in the Byzantine society, it was a soldier or a priest. In Venice, it was a trader or a merchant. So essentially they were... They were incentivizing people to be this kind of person that, you know, just extracted wealth and didn't really give anything back to society. I mean, like trade obviously creates some kind of economic productivity and you get goods and services through that. But essentially that you aren't really serving anyone but yourself at the end of the day. If you're a soldier or a priest, you're either serving God or you're serving the country. Anything think can be merchants that are maybe Christian or have a different outlook on the accumulation of wealth and they can be using that to create more jobs and bring in bring upon more people within their little system yes you could but would they would the average attitude of a venetian merchant be that or would it be i want to expand my fleet so i can accumulate more wealth sure. that well that was the cultural that was the culture of venice at the time but do you think it's an issue of uh a, a, a merchant system versus a bureaucratic government system or it's an issue of culture? I mean, this is like every podcast, but... What? You know, like, what is, is it the system or is it the culture? So is it the, the fact that in Venice there were a lot of merchants and not a strong government that had those Christian ideals or is it just the fact that they lacked those ideals? You know what I'm saying? Like, could there, could there be a merchant society that... that is a much more altruistic society. I just don't think it can be because the, the, the natural environmental incentive of that is you are competing with this other person that invented this worth and value on this product. 
So what are you going to do? You're going to invent a yeah. worth and value on it. In fact, it's instilled in, there's a great story and it's the story that really encapsulates Venice. It's their folklore. It's the idea of why they're proud of themselves. And it was that there was a dead priest in Egypt under the control of the Muslims, Christian. They wanted to take him back to Venice. And so the way that they did that was by getting that corpse and putting it under a layer of pork on a wheelbarrow, knowing that the Muslim guards wouldn't touch it because there was just a layer of pork there and they don't touch pork. Then they put it on the ship and they came back with the same. That says a lot about their society. That says a lot that they're like, at the core of it, what does that say? They celebrate dishonesty. There's no nobility to it, right? Like, Why are they trying to get that priest back? What does that mean to them? It was valuable. The priest was valuable. That's all. So it was just a, about financial. What was the. What it's was about the, financial reward. What was the financial reward of that priest? Did he have. It's, kind of it it like started a bidding war over several cities that wanted it. The, this one priest. Well, no, sorry, not a priest, saint. It was a dead saint. Oh, right, right, right. A dead saint. Okay, yeah. Um, and this is, it's, it's very obvious, like the Vatican was constantly talking about this, that Venice pretends that it's Christian because it serves its mercantile objectives. Even when you look at the empire that it created, all it wanted was just a few islands so that it was able to hop its merchant class to, say, uh, Alexandria or to the Black Sea or to Constantinople or to Spain. They just wanted these islands so that they could facilitate trade. That was all they were interested in. Later on, this is where like a couple of hundred years later, banking started to develop. And you should look at the things that Venice had created. It created accounting in its modern form. It created banking in its modern form. It's If you read the inventions that Venice had come up with in terms of banking, it's honestly like one of those midday ads where it's like 24 months interest-free, double negative back gearing. And like, it's just all of these buzzword things that like bankers would obviously understand, but it was just all of these ways of extracting wealth off of doing nothing, essentially just usury. The, 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 the sin of sins in both Christian and Muslim ethos, that was encouraged in Venice and they were inventing it. They were inventing it. They were coming up with all kinds of genius ways of indebting people. You come to the Fourth Crusade. This is the classic sacking of Constantinople. It was a bunch of crusaders that wanted to go to Jerusalem to take it back for the Christian cause. That was their cause. That's what they wanted to do. The Doge was like, I'll build these ships, but you don't have enough money. So you're going to have to sack a Christian city. You're going to have to sack the city of cities, which was Constantinople. And why did they do it? because they are indebted. They understand that there is a psychological pressure on people once they're in debt and you can control them to do insane things. It was unthinkable that fellow Christians would be sacking the birthplace of Christianity, which was Constantinople, and yet they did it. And they extracted all of its wealth. It came back in a like very diminished form for 200 years. Then the Ottomans finally took over. The book that I was reading about it was talking about how for the last 200 years, it is essentially this endless correspondence between the Byzantine emperor and the Doge of Venice saying, please, can we have some ships to defend ourselves? It'll take five ships to stop the Ottomans from coming into Europe. We just need a few to, you know... Uh, 
go along these tiny straits to make sure that they're not ferrying soldiers over and them sitting there and like coming up with all these fancy excuses and essentially saying no. There was also this, again, this other thing of like for the last 200 years of, oh, there was so many civil wars in the last 200 years of Constantinople. It was because of Venice and its rival, the Genoese, which were here. They were constantly fighting, funding civil wars, putting the emperor in more debt that was currently on the throne that was either run by the Genoese or the Venetians because they wanted access to the Black Sea and that city kind of cuts off access to the Black Sea or not. So they wanted access for their ships into the Black Sea and not the Genoese, their rivals. And that's the only reason they were funding these endless wars, which was just impoverishing the Byzantine, the very diminishing Byzantine Empire more and more to the point that they were constantly just begging for foreign military aid. And the only way they would ever get military aid is if it was in Venice's uh, interests or if it was in Genoa's interests. It was never about the Byzantine Empire over the last 200 years. It was a constant drainage of wealth and power to these areas to the point. Why didn't any of these armies try to sack Venice? Now, this is the very interesting point. You know what the Hundred Years' War was about between Britain and France? Venice was scared that it was going to be sacked by France, that it was going to be invaded by France. And so they started entering British politics, which is the next part of why they wanted parliaments instead of kings, because kings, if you don't get a king on your side, too bad for you. Maybe next next generation you can try and bribe that king. If you have a parliament, you essentially have a block a party permanently there that is working in your interests. And back then, their parliament, uh, their version of the Tories was called the Whigs and it was also known as the Party of Venetians because it was completely funded by Venetian banking money. And they were always pushing to have war with France because they wanted to drain France's resources from attacking Venice. And so there was this endless war that was impoverishing both France and Britain, just draining them of soldiers for a hundred years. There was also, I can't even remember the name of it. I'm going to have to look it up, but how there was, we've always got this idea of world war one. Venice started the first world war and it was just to get all of these states to fight amongst each other so that they could maintain primacy. So is it just operating as this like unique city state within Italy? Yes, it was a, it was a unique city state. It was a quote unquote Republic. It was a Republic of Venice and it had, Surprise, surprise, a parliamentary, uh, parliamentary system in the age of kings. Now, what is important about a parliamentary system? Whoever has the most money can bribe their way to the top. And so then you were just having this, this essentially political system that was just incentivizing greed, more and more greed. Then it finally got to the end of the Byzantine era and there was this one correspondence that I was reading through the Venetian Doge and the Byzantine Emperor. It got to the point, it was honestly tragic, where one empress had to pawn the emperor's crown and jewels, royal jewels, to Venice for a loan. They never got those jewels back. It was always in Venice for the next hundred years. Um, And from then on the emperor would be wearing a crown made of leather and glass. Fake jewels were in it. It was a real beautiful symbol of like how diminished this mighty city had become. It was, it was that beholden. Like the crown, such a great symbolism. The crown of Byzantine, the crown of the Romans, the, the mightiest civilization that had ever existed was in Venice. Venice belonged to the... To, uh, 
uh, sorry, the Byzantines belonged to Venice. There was this correspondence between them. This was one of the emperors that was wearing the leather crown. And they were talking about this uh, compensation that they would always be talking about of, you know, like you owe us money for this, you owe us money for that, usual diplomacy. But there was something in it that really struck me, which was that the Byzantine emperor was saying to the Venetian doge, why are you talking in pure accounting terms? Why are you just talking about this castle being worth 30,000 ducats and uh, the damage in this island being 15,000 ducats? It's never about lives. It's never about the historical or cultural significance of it. It's never about whether the war or the damage was justified or in response to anything else. It's pure accounting. He was shocked by it. Shocked. You could, you, you could read it that in the medieval world, there was a period where human beings weren't just reducing everything to a monetary value, but the Venetians were. The Venetians were reducing everything to a ducat. Everything was worth a ducat. And that was a result of trade because trade is just about everything becoming a price, everything having a price on it. Venice never had a, any religion or anything like that. How did they – did they just sort of manipulate all these other – states into taking out loans so that they could fund things how did yeah how did it undertake all of this i mean look why it, did the other it was christian in name okay so it used christianity as an excuse to do things and would do other, okay so for instance they would loan and help out the ottomans all the time whereas like all the other Christian states and until the very late stages of the byzantine empire where it was terminal then it would obviously be doing deals with the ottomans but most of the time, the Christian states would be against the Muslim states. It was, it was a battle of ideology. The Venetians were not ideological about it. They didn't care about the fall of Constantinople. They cared about ensuring that they were still going to get access to the Black Sea. They didn't get access to the Black Sea. Uh, the Vene- uh, sorry, the Ottomans were just like, no, nah, we own it all now. Fuck you. We're not giving you access to this. And very quickly after that, maybe 100 years afterwards, the Venetian Empire started to wither and die because the Ottomans were denying them trade, were in the position to deny them trade. This is the interesting part. After that, these wealthy Venetian banking and mercantile families from way back moved out of Venice and saw that momentum was happening across Britain because this was started at the beginning of the era of colonisation and they moved into Britain and then they started controlling the banking system from Britain. And then when the British Empire started to wither and die, these Venetian families moved to the US. What it created was the first uh, aristocratic class that wasn't tied to land, that had no investment in the, in the state at all, none. As soon as the state wasn't serving them, they would just move all of their money out of it, make it terminal, go to the next place, constantly leeching off of each civilization. This is what's freaking me out about it. This is exactly what three of Shakespeare's plays are about this. Three are of him warning the British people about the Venetians infiltrating British politics. Is that where you get that big family? That big family that apparently controls all the central banking in the world? What are they? What are they called again? Rock, uh, no, not Rockefellers. Uh, Rothschilds. Yeah, is that them? Is they are they from Venice? I'm pretty sure. I know that 
the Bush family can uh, trace its roots back to one of these extremely rich Venetian families, but most of the power families that are European trace their origins back to Venice. They've been controlling the world ever since, really. And I know that it sounds like it's a massive conspiracy theory, but I've been reading a lot about it and it's making a lot of sense. And so, really, the fall of Rome, the fall of what was actually Rome, and the reason that it doesn't fit in with all of these other civilizations falling is because it was the first casualty of the modern age. It was the first nation that was debt-trapped and then slowly you know, suffocated. There weren't other nations that went bankrupt before or empires or city-states or anything? Yeah, but they couldn't stay on this drip feed of a banking class saying, that's okay, I'll give you a loan. I'll let you out of that trouble. Uh-huh. Okay, now now I own this castle. Now I own that. Like, if the, if the civilization went bankrupt, there would be someone else from that ethnicity, region, culture that would take up the mantle. Yeah. That was the usual system of things. This was, there is no money left. Nothing. It's just been drained, bone dry. The It used to be, Constantinople in its peak used to be a place where they could avert entire wars by inviting the dignitaries into Constantinople and people would weep at its beauty. It was the, the indisputably most beautiful city on earth. Uh, they would go back to their place and say... Essentially, like, we shouldn't wage war with these people. It would be a crime to do so. At the end of it, they were saying they had never seen more destitute, desperate people than the people that lived in Constantinople. That's the the, the sad fall of grace of Rome. And then it makes a lot of sense because after that, Venice got richer because anybody who could afford or could escape the grasp of the Ottomans went to Venice. They said, yeah, okay, we'll set up our own little Byzantine quarter and that created a lot of the intellectual machinery that created the Renaissance. It's because they had the knowledge. They, they had these educational institutions that had kept alive for a thousand years, training people in like, you know, sophistry, medicine, philosophy, uh, engineering, basic university disciplines that moved to Western Europe. When it moved to Western Europe, when it came into the Enlightenment age, this is why I say when people say, oh, it was about educating the public. Yes, it was about educating the public, but it was about educating them in a certain way. Because you always have to think, who's funding that education and for what purposes? And I honestly think it was to educate the public into thinking you should have a parliamentary system. And the reason that they wanted parliamentary systems is because it's then very easy for an extremely rich but extremely small militarily inept country like Venice to control these countries. And they, they were the first ones to sort of realise, why do we even bother building an army when we can just make other countries fight for us? It really, it, it's, it's freaked me out ever since. It's freaked me out. The power of Venice. You know what else? This is amazing. Countries that are invaded today and debt-trapped you know what that's called? The Venetian method. Wow. Isn't that phenomenal? So lasted a very long time. And has only been perfected since. In fact, when I'm thinking about it, there was this uh, company that my friend from Michael West, and I can't remember the name of the company now, but they were saying that they are uh, this company that's essentially – 
coming up with algorithms that are able to predict what your political opinion is going to be on an issue before it's even announced so that they can change the narrative before it even happens so that as soon as the initiative is announced, you just think, oh, what a great idea. Yeah, well, obviously that makes sense. That is the level of mind control that we're getting at now. And they said that they have traced that company's origins again back to Venice. All of the- Today. Huh? Today, Venice. it's It's like a very, very old company that started in Venice, moved to Britain, the same pattern. Yeah. The same pattern because it's it, it was the creation of a truly global elite class that wasn't tied to any state, that wasn't tied to any land and therefore had no loyalties to anything. And this is something that you constantly hear the Pope, you constantly hear the Byzantine emperor, you constantly hear, uh, you know, kings of France saying they were just always just baffled at the Venetians in this idea of like, where's your honour? Honour was a thing in medieval Europe. It existed. It wasn't just this like romantic idea that we have in our heads. These people truly believed in these things of virtue, honour, nobility, you know, essentially just being an upstanding human being and like pushing for something, you know, like, I don't know, heavenly or whatever. But the Venetians didn't. The Venetians didn't and everybody in the medieval world, in the Christian medieval world, was just baffled by it. They couldn't – I'm telling you, like you read these correspondents, it's honestly like the the Byzantine emperor lives in a world where the possibilities of Venice just aren't – like he's he's trying to grapple that there are people that think like this, you know. It's that alien. And none of them could – they couldn't combine forces and – Sack Venice or anything? They were too wily. They were too wily. They had too much money. And I think that that's the whole thing. It's just that like while everybody else was trapped by the old way of thinking, they knew that they could trap people with debt. And debt can make people do insane things like the Fourth Crusade, known as one of the most horrendous mistakes in history. And there'll be a bunch of history buffs writing down there saying it was a pure accident. Who do you think fucking wrote the history? Of course, the Venetians are going to be like, it just happened. It just happened that we sacked the most walled, well-fortified city on earth. It wasn't a fucking accident. There's no way. So, you, you, you know, theoretically, they could have crushed Venice, theoretically, but if they have that much political influence where they are able to remove popes, let alone kings... Where's the incentive? So I think at the end of the day, and this is something that is like, okay, you have one of the most successful civilizations of Europe. Definitely the thing that we owe modernity to. When everybody always says, oh, it was the Renaissance, the Renaissance would not have been possible without the Byzantines keeping that flame of knowledge burning for a thousand years. It would have been extinguished without them. That was because of a sophisticated bureaucracy that had a an understanding that, you know, citizens serve the state and the state serves citizens. There was a symbiotic relationship that happened there. It was a, a modern government of senses. It wasn't, the bureaucracy wasn't the same and nowhere near as sophisticated as now, obviously, but it was extremely sophisticated for 1000 AD. And that's what kept it going. The Venetian Empire 
collapsed within less than 200 years, you've got to say. Like from being an empire to its collapse, maybe 200 years. Far, far short of a 1,000 years. Uh, And that was, again, because there was no – as soon as, like, the winds changed, so did the Venetians. They moved to another place. What is freaking me out is the fact that the the history of what the Venetians have done, the way that they've been able to rewrite history is that – the Renaissance was organic. The Enlightenment era was organic. Uh, the Byzantine Empire, uh, the Byzantines. So you see, the thing is, it's so ingrained that I can't even say the Romans. I can't say the Romans. They've permanently made it Byzantine. The way that you are able to describe this to other people is Byzantine, not Roman. The reason that they wanted to get rid of Rome, the idea of them being Roman, is because Rome lays such a large shadow on Europe that it was impossible, it, it, it became synonymous with civilization, whereas Greek became civil, uh, synonymous with like effeminate, lazy, decadent, homosexual, like slurs. That's what that became. That's then, right. you know, scholars came along and said, oh, actually, we'll call them the Byzantines, we'll be somewhat neutral. and But then kept the idea, this is what I'm saying, the idea that Byzantine means red tape, unnecessary bureaucracy holding down the entrepreneur that was deliberate that was deliberate there is a reason that the thinkers of the enlightenment age despise the byzantine empire i've got a list of quotes back it's it's comical how disparaging they are of the byzantines comical and what did they say specifically about the byzantines i can't remember the exact phrasing but it's things like uh it was a thousand years of shameful decadent orthodox tyranny that extinguished itself that was kind of like their dismissal of a thousand years of uh you know the only civilization in europe really everything else was a distant second to that um and so new i suppose yeah just just getting rid of the idea that that was civilization and making the idea that the Renaissance was this revival of Roman principles that just appeared out of nowhere, that all of a sudden they just started to realise, oh, actually, ancient Rome had it right. But ancient Rome had it right in this very specific way. Ancient Rome had it right in the philosophical measures of, uh, you know, interpreting reality and the art was kind of cool. The government was a bit lame, though. That was a bit naff. And, of course, obviously, that's why the IPA and, you know, the Cato Institute and all these things are always talking about, isn't that a coincidence, Republic Rome, where it was a parliament, and in the Enlightenment era, where you started to see Europe more from absolute monarchies into parliaments. It is a way that we have been conditioned to see the world that is a thousand years old and a lot more deep and sinister than I thought. And there's all these other things like, you know, you see Prince Charles and Prince William wearing these traditional Phoenician garbs even to this day. There's all these kind of symbols of the Venetian lion in a bunch of power centres like banks to this day. Venice as an elite class still exists. Anyway, it's really scared the shit out of me. Yeah, well. I know. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what to say. I know. I know. I'm trying to process it all too. I've, I've, I've got a lot more to read about it, but 
yeah, keep me up, keep keep us updated because I don't, I don't know much about the. It, 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 I have nowhere near the the breadth of knowledge you do on history, by the the fact that there was this other this this civilization that existed for a thousand years through Dark Ages Europe that's hardly spoken about. You don't learn about that in history. No, you, you learn it's about the Dark Ages. Rome, you learn about yeah. the years as Rome was collapsing and then, yeah, you just know about the Dark Ages. And then it was the Dark Ages and then all of a sudden the Renaissance appeared out of nowhere and then the Enlightenment Age and then all of a sudden we've got democracies. Isn't it wonderful? That's history. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you hear a little bit about how the modern-day Iraq and the, the, whether it was the Persians, but the, the sort of Muslims took on a lot of ancient Greek and ancient Roman teachings and, and sort of maintained that tradition mm. and then passed it and then eventually just became subsumed into Europe mm. when it came out of that Dark Ages stage. But, I don't, okay, I have no idea. I'm not, I'm not a history But guy. isn't that amazing because they're talking about the Muslim caliphate taking over former Roman territories. They're talking about taking over Egypt and Algeria and Syria. These were all Roman territories that the East Roman Empire ran. And then, because Islamics, and this is something that Ali points out, early Islamics were truly ideological people, as in their generals dressed worse than the average foot soldier. They were clearly men of God, right? They had no idea how to run a fucking empire. So they just said to the elite class that was there, just keep doing what you're doing. And they said, okay. And in fact, they lightened everyone's tax loads. And so it became sort of this religion calling card for the poor. That was a big reason why it spread so quickly. But the fact that they say that, oh, no, it was the Arabs that reinstalled civilization back into Europe, that is... An absolute lie. It, it is the exact opposite way around. Rome gave civilization to these. These were, obviously, they had something going for them, and they were truly, I think, obviously, very noble people. The fact that generals would sleep on the floor and allow their servants to sleep on the camel at night and that kind of stuff, right? Like, they, they were desert people, though. In fact, Dune, the movie, is about the rise of Islam. That's what it's about. But... No, <laughs> it was Roman civilization. And they had the Babylonians that they also I- incorporated into theirs. You can say that it was the Persians as well. But in terms of them just like reinfecting Europe with civilization, that, that is a complete lie. The Byzantine Empire acted as a shield from both Islamic influence into Europe and barbarian invasions into uh, the Middle Ages for that entire time. And the entire time, the reason that it was able to do that is because it was so competently run in comparison to everything else. An empire the size of uh, what the caliphate became, because it was almost the entire known world, apart from like, you know, France and Greece, uh, that should have been able to crush the Byzantines. It was tiny in comparison. It lost a fifth of its population to it. The only way that it was able to do that was through extremely complicated, sophisticated uh, government. Like a, a really good example of that is, you know that scene in Lord of the Rings where there's they're lighting the fires to Gondor and that's the communication method to say that 
Rohan's Under Trouble or whatever. Vaguely. You remember that? It's been a while since I've seen those ones. Not really. I think I vaguely remember it. Those fires along the mountains. And that's just a quick way of saying it. The Byzantines invented that. So you, you would be able to find out if there was trouble on the borders of Turkey that the average general generals that they set up there couldn't handle within the space of a couple of days. You could go across the entire breadth of Turkey, which usually would take people a month to march or something like that. Within two days, Constantinople would say, oh, okay, it's the beginning of the Arabic raids this year. And a very, very advanced society for its time. And it fell. And it fell because of something extremely cancerous that the world is now engulfed in, I think. Which is what we're always talking about, which is just essentially banking. Well. Yeah. Anyway, let us know your thoughts. Yeah. Uh, If you've got any suggestions on further reading for me, please let me know because I am still trying to formulate this theory in my mind. I would be especially interested in anything about Venice, but I think I'm going to have to do it, even though I've always said I've never seen the importance of Shakespeare. And you know what? Now I know why. Because why? what were we taught about Othello? We were taught about Othello that it was about a black man that was he was racist against in Venice because everyone else was white and he was a good general, but it didn't matter. They wanted to get rid of him because he was black. That is not what Othello was about. <laughs> Othello is about... Othello is about Venice orchestrating a world war for Venice's interest. That's what Othello's about. The Merchant of Venice is obviously about banking. And King Lear is about how uh, Venice is able to infiltrate a political class and make it work for it. So I have to do more reading on it. Yeah, after I remember I studied, I think, two of those texts in high school mm. to revisit that. Mm. Mm. Yeah, well, you've given me a lot to think about. Thank you for that one. No worries. No, I love it when you speak passionately about history. <laughs> Definitely make, I'm sure you make everyone think very, very deeply about what they've accepted as just, you know, unquestionable truths. So, yeah. Appreciate it, man. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, gang. <laughs>